Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Andy. Thank you for your kind welcome. How are we all doing today? Great. Fantastic. Um, so it is so good to be back with you all. And uh, This is my first time here from the front in the Rosemary Presbyterian Halls. So really, really good to be back with you. Um, if I haven't met you before, as Andy said, my name is Johnny. And I've been floating around BCV now for four or five or so years. And full disclosure... I'm on the far end of like a tickly throat, right? So if my voice in the middle of this regresses 15 years and I look like I could no longer grow a beard, have grace for me, right? Okay? Have grace for me. It's plenty of distance. It's all good. Um, So I get to come share with you guys from Mark today. We've been journeying through this series in the book of Mark um, for now a number of months, and we've been making some really good progress, if you ask me. We're coming up to the halfway point, which will be hopefully in a couple of weeks' time, and acts as this kind of central point in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8. But this afternoon, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be spending some time in the last six verses of Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 verse 31 to 37. And throughout the book so far, the overriding question that Mark is inviting us to ask is who is this man, Jesus? Who is it that he claimed to be? Who is it that others believed that he was? But most importantly, who do we, who do you, the readers, say that he is to you? And so last week, we witnessed an encounter with a Syrophoenician woman, and he did an amazing job at covering that. It's a tricky passage where there's some stuff that almost sounds like Jesus can be a little bit offensive in it, but you can go back and listen to that online. You can pick that up, and he did an amazing job at showing us that Jesus is inviting us in that to push through barriers in our walk with him. And so we are continuing along that journey of following Jesus throughout his travels in Gentile or non-Jewish areas. And so we followed him in these travels and we've watched him as he performs miracles, as he feeds thousands, as he debates and questions with the religious leaders. And now we're picking him up, journeying away from the place where he meets the Syrophoenician woman in chapter seven, with him going to another unexpected place, and doing another unexpected thing. And so if you have a Bible with you, let's dive in in Mark 7, verse 31 and onwards. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to, put his, to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to the heavens, he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What's going on there? 
Mark, in typical Mark fashion, crams so much into this short, condensed section of scripture. And it can be easy to miss some of the hints that he's giving us as we brush through these verses. And so we're just going to take it verse by verse and walk through and explore what Mark is inviting us into. He starts with this statement of fact. Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. He went from one region, where he met this Syrophoenician woman last week, to this new place. And at face value, that can appear simple. That's what he's telling us. A to B, one place to another. Except, as we've talked about weeks before, one of the tools in our toolkit for understanding the Bible is geography. When I come across place names and locations, typically they're not just there to fill space. They're there to invite us to poke a little bit and see what else is going on. If you look at this map behind me, it has Jesus' journey marked on it. Uh, The Tyre was a place on the Phoenician coastline up there on the left-hand side, or kind of top left off of center. And Jesus' target destination is quite a distance down south by the Sea of Galilee. But note Mark's detail. He went from Tyre through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. That's not the right way to go. That's not the way to go if you're looking for the direct route. If you're going for the safe, simple, and easy journey back to the Sea of Galilee, you're not going to go the way Jesus does. He takes this ridiculously long, over-involved route from Tyre up through Sidon, down and around, possibly through Philippi or Mount Hermon, to get to this place by the Sea of Galilee. To put this into perspective, it doesn't show a scale on this map, but the journey that he took was 120 miles, all by foot. The direct route was something in around 30 or 40. That's like saying I'm going to travel to Newry, but rather than go direct down the A1, I'm going to go to Londonderry, swoop round under Loch Ness, and go to Newry all by foot. Why does Mark include that detail? This is one of those things that's been thrown around by people for a long, long time, but one of the most compelling reasons that I can see for Mark to include this is that Jesus did not want to rush through the regions where he was least expected. For Jesus, the place was not the primary focus. The people that he met along the way were. As he journeyed through the region of Tyre to Sidon and back down to this place where he met this man, he was not in a hurry to get from place to place. As Andy noted last week, he was in part trying to get away from the people who were looking to persecute him, but I don't think it's a stretch to see him intentionally taking time to make his presence known and felt with the people that those around would have looked at and thought were on the outside. For Jesus, he was prioritizing the time that he got to spend with the people that he met along the journey. He didn't plan his route geographically. For Jesus, he planned it culturally, relationally, and personally. For Jesus, his priority was to be personal along this journey. And so he takes this long way around And he ends up at the Sea of Galilee, specifically that place down at the kind of bottom right of it, the southeastern region, in a place part of the Decapolis, which was just the 10 cities is what that literally means. And as soon as he lands up, he's bombarded by these crowds. They come to him and they beg him to lay their hands on this person who's deaf and has a speech impediment. Jesus' reputation here has clearly preceded him. And word has spread 
Because I don't know if you remember the last time that he spent time in the Decapolis, but it was a couple of chapters earlier in Mark chapter 5. And whenever he's in Mark chapter 5, he goes to that region, the Decapolis, and he drives out this legion of demons from a man into a herd of pigs. And they end up going a bit crazy and running off a cliff edge, and everyone in the town drives him out and says, get out of here, we are not interested in having you. But in that passage, Mark notes in chapter 5 that whenever Jesus is driven out by the people, he turns to the man who's now free from the legion and says, go into the place, the Decapolis, and tell others about what you have experienced. Tell them about me. And he goes and it says that everyone who heard was amazed. So you can picture the scene. Picture this moment. This is the man that they've been waiting for. This is the one that they realized after they drove him out was someone they should have paid attention to. And so the crowds bombard him, desperate to see him do a miracle again. But what is it that Jesus does with this expectant crowd growing around him, teeming with expectation, ready to see him do this miracle once again in front of their very eyes. This is Jesus' moment to redeem his reputation. This is his moment to show this crowd of people who previously drove him out, who really is in charge. This is his moment to show them that he was worth paying attention to right back in the beginning. But in that moment, Surrounded by that crowd, he chooses to take this man aside, brought along by the people, off to the side, away from earshot, away from the crowds, to a private place to be alone. And he does what on the surface can look to us like a really strange action. Like it sounds like a weird detail where he puts his fingers into the man's ears and spits on his hand and puts it in the man's tongue. Like to us, like we're like, what, what, what is that about? What's going on there? But imagine for a moment you're this man. Your entire life you've struggled with hearing. So much so that you've never even learned to speak clearly. Everywhere you go, you stand out. You're obvious. You're different. You're strange. People look, people laugh, people mock. And the community that you're a part of seems to be the kind of people that'll drag you around as a problem to be fixed to anyone that comes who could potentially make you better. You've always been the one that needs to be fixed. The one that gets paraded around to perform a spectacle upon. Then Jesus appears, and you don't know what he's saying. You don't know what the crowds are saying. You can't understand. You can't lip read. You don't know what's going on. But you can imagine that you know what's about to happen. But rather than gather a crowd around you, rather than making a show of it, rather than turning you into a spectacle or a public affair, rather than prioritizing his own reputation, Jesus chooses to take you off to the side, away from the crowds, and comes down to your level looks you in the eyes and does this thing with the ears and the tongue. To us, it sounds strange. What's going on there? And some people have thought that maybe Jesus is trying to show that he can do different types of healings or maybe he's trying to show that he doesn't have to heal in a certain way and he can heal in this way and that way. But I think when we look at this from the perspective of Mark, when we read it at face value, It looks a lot like Jesus is communicating in some primitive form of sign language with this man. He's trying to show him what he's about to do. Imagine once again, you are that man. Imagine you've had people try to heal you before, but has anyone ever taken the time to explain it? 
Has anyone ever taken the time to look at you and say, you are worth me paying attention? Has anyone ever taken you aside from the crowds instead of making a public show of it? Has anyone ever looked at you and thought of you as not just a problem to be fixed, but as an individual worth communicating with? As Edward puts it, by himself, the needy man is simply another face in the crowd of Gentiles. But in removing him from the crowd, Jesus signifies that he is not simply a problem, but a unique individual. Jesus is different. He isn't like the other healers. He is personal. He takes time to see this man and recognize him as an individual. Jesus makes it personal. He's not just another face in the crowd. He is not a spectacle to be shown off. He's not just a person with a problem. He takes time to see that and engage with this man and comes down to his level and communicates with him. And in doing that, Mark is showing us the character of the God that we meet in the Jesus throughout this gospel. A God who takes time. A God who is personal, who is not afraid to come close, that isn't about using people for publicity or to even get his tasks done, but is intimate and close to the individuals, each of us, that he has made and created. And Mark throws a little bit of a contrast in here to the way Jesus responded to the Syrophoenician woman last week. The woman that whenever you read the response from last week and you can go and listen to the sermon on it can almost sound like Jesus is responding in this offensive way. But yet when he meets this man, it's intimate, it's close and it's gentle. And I think he throws that contrast in to show us that Jesus knows exactly what each of us as individuals knows and needs in a moment. And so we have Jesus making this journey because he wants to be close to the people. Then we have Jesus taking time to see this man that is right in front of him, not as a spectacle to be used, but as an individual to be heard and listened to. Then we read this in verse 34. And looking up to the heavens, Jesus sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. After touching the man's ears and spitting under his hand and touching his tongue, as Jesus heals this man from his sickness, he looks up to the heavens and he sighs. Or that word sigh can also be translated groaning as it is in other parts of the Bible. Why does Jesus sigh? He's about to heal this man. Why does he sigh? Why is it that we get this detail from Mark He's about to heal this guy, and I'm sure it's not a sort of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it, sigh, sort of sigh. I don't think that's what's happening. And for me, if I'm about to heal someone that's sitting in front of me who their entire life has struggled with being unable to hear or to speak, I'm thinking, just wait till you see this. This is going to be class. Like, (laughs) just you watch me, right? Like, I am ready. But Jesus doesn't seem to have that reaction. There almost seems to be a frustration. There almost seems to be a feeling of like, this is not how it's meant to be. And to understand why that's there, I think we need to look at the verses either side of the healing and do a little bit of jumping around. And so come along with me as we jump throughout different parts of the Bible. The man that Jesus um, meets here is described as having a speech impediment as being deaf and having a speech impediment. But the word that Mark uses for speech impediment is actually not a typical word 
that he uses here. He could have chosen a number of different words. And one of the other tools that we've talked about, similar to the geography tool in our toolkit to read the Bible, is the tool of hyperlinks. Does anyone remember us talking about this before? One of our tools is the tool of hyperlinks. And so for a moment, imagine a hyperlink in a website. Do you know, like you click on a word and it takes you to another website, or like you click on a picture and it takes you to another part of the same website. Uh, the kind of thing that you can spend hours on Wikipedia and before you know it, you've went from like the history of England to like the My Little Pony releases from 2002 to like 2012. Do you know what I mean? Like the thing that can take you all over the place, right? Hyperlinks can kind of like take you all over the place in the internet, but the point and purpose of a hyperlink whenever the author writes a website is that you would import the knowledge from what is within the hyperlink into what you're reading in that moment. That's what's happening here. Mark uses this tool to communicate to us, the readers, something by hyperlinking a word to another part of the Bible. There are other words Mark could have used here for speech impediment. The word that he uses is this word, mogilalos. I'm not a Greek scholar, probably butchering the pronunciation, right? Mogilalos, but it only occurs one other time in the entirety of the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, in the Greek translation, in chapter 35. And Mark at the time is writing to a primarily Gentile audience, which means that the people that are reading it didn't really have much concern for much of what's happening in the Old Testament writings, at least not so much as the people that might have read the book of Matthew. And so Edwards, another scholar, says that whenever you you see Old Testament references in the book of Mark, they're like load-bearing beams within the passages. And so Mark sets up a load-bearing beam, a hyperlink from this passage in Mark 7 right back to Isaiah 35, and he wants us to import all of that meaning, all of that story into this encounter with this man in Mark 7. And so what happens in Isaiah 35? Edward says like this, Isaiah 35 is essentially the final chapter of the first part of Isaiah. It follows a series of chapters declaring God's judgment of Edom, Egypt, Tyre, Israel, and Jerusalem. In chapter 35, however, the theme shifts from judgment to eschatology and to the joy not only of the redeemed but of all of creation and the revelation of God himself. Isaiah 35 is a chapter slotted right in the midst of judgment and warning passages about what the day will look like whenever God himself comes and restores creation. And it says this, Isaiah 35 verses four and onwards. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue, Mogilalos, shout for joy. Isaiah is saying that on the day that you see this stuff happening, on the day that you witness deaf ears unstopped and mute tongues set free, on that day, that is God himself right there in the midst of it, in a broken creation, bringing about restoration. But Isaiah goes beyond just an individual moment with one person in Mark 7. It's a story of what God is going to do in all of creation. Isaiah 35, imported. Have you got it? Right? Now jump with me to verse 37 in our original passage. They were astonished. This is the crowd reacting to what Jesus does. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. 
Does that remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? Genesis chapter one, hyperlink tool in hand, drawing forth all of the meaning and all of the story. After each day in creation, God looks on what he created and says, it is good. It is good. It is very good. In the garden as it was meant to be. Mark is getting his readers, us, here today, to bring those two passages, Isaiah 35 and Genesis chapter 1, and all of their associated meaning into this moment with this mute and deaf man by the Sea of Galilee. And so to bring it back round to the question, why does Jesus sigh? What is Mark trying to show us? I think that the Jesus that Mark shows us right here in this passage is a Jesus whose sigh and groaning in that moment comes from a deep frustration at the way that things are, a deep frustration at the disorder of the world that causes this man in front of him to be able to be unable to speak and hear, a frustration at the way in which the enemy has taken what he called very good in Genesis 1 and has twisted it and infiltrated it and influenced it in a way that breaks his heart. But yet paired with that is a hope and a promise that the person who heals those things is the person that when he comes on the scene will bring about restoration and recreation to everything that has been undone from what was very good in the beginning. That that person, Jesus, on this pages in Mark chapter 7 is the person that those later claim to be is the son of God, the Messiah, ready to bring about order to chaos, ready to put his hand to the broken creation that's been undone by sin and to remake it so that once again he can say it is very, very good. For Jesus, the one that we meet in this passage, the brokenness of the world, the influence of the evil one, the sin that has taken God's good creation and twisted it, and his mission to redeem it is a personal one. It is one that he emotionally engages with. It is one that he sighs when he sees it. It is one that he feels deeply. It's not something he can sit back from and kind of wait until it's all fixed. It's not something that he can sit back from and say, bear with it. It's something that he is actively, personally, intimately involved in and present to in the moment that he finds himself in. And that is why there is a sigh, even though there is a healing about to come. That's why he feels what he feels in this passage because it's a sigh of frustration or even anger at the brokenness and the way in which this man is experiencing that in his life. But yet paired with that, as Mark shows us, there is this hope that Isaiah 35, the restoration of all of creation is going to come in and through that person. And so let's bring this home. What does that actually mean for us today? Sitting in North Belfast in rented church halls 2,000 and some years on from this moment in Mark chapter 7. What does it mean for us, for you? Well, firstly, the mark that Jesus presents to us in this passage, the one that we have spent week upon week upon week looking at, the person that walked this earth 2,000 years ago is a personal God. He is personal. 
Jesus takes this long route around to get close to this man at the Sea of Galilee, but on his way, he doesn't rush. He doesn't take shortcuts or even necessarily go the sensible route. He takes his time walking long under traveled roads to be close to the people that were on the outside. He prioritized being personally present over any sort of pace or brevity or simplicity. And when he meets this man by the Sea of Galilee, he knows exactly, down to a T, what this man needs. He doesn't care for his own reputation. He sets that aside. He doesn't care for what other people are asking of him. He cares for the man that's in front of him so much so that he sees him as more than just a problem. He comes down to his level and communicates with him. The God that we follow, BCV, is that same person. Jesus himself that same character who cares deeply for you as an individual, not as a face in a crowd that it can easily become or that we can feel like, not as an individual that's mixed up in kind of this mass of people, but as an individual that God sees and wants to communicate with him. To him, you're not simply a problem to be fixed. Your issues and your baggage and your emotional burdens are not targets to simply be tackled so that you can be sent out and go and do all of what he has for you. You are an individual recognized by him, seen by him. He wants to take time to be close to you, to take whatever that long road around looks like to be near to you, to communicate with you, however that may look, whatever that may take. His priority isn't just that you'd be fixed up, although that happens along the way, but rather that we would be near, communicating, receiving, and hearing from him. He knows what we need. He knew what this man needed. He saw him as so much more than the problems that were presented to him. He saw him for the individual that he was. And so ask yourself, or even let me ask from the front, where is your thinking on who our God is, on who Jesus is, misaligned with the personal nature of who we see here? Where do you see yourself as just another face in the crowd, as another target to be fixed, and not as an individual loved dearly by the God that we meet in Mark chapter 7. The God whose priority isn't just the fixing, but whose priority is to be personally present to you as you are to him. I can't answer that for you, but if you resonate with that, we'll take some time afterwards and there will be space for Jesus himself to take you aside and we'll create some space for that. And secondly, on to how this comes forward to us today. As Andy said last week, we're not just trying to paint this picture of like a hippie Jesus, right? We're not interested in just making this picture of this nice and tame and everything will be wonderful whenever you follow him, Jesus, that it could easily sound like from what I've just said. That's not the person that Mark brings to us here. Because in this same passage that we meet the intimate personal, present Jesus that takes this individual aside and communicates with him, we also see that this is the God who created everything that we see in the world around us. 
who for him is emotionally connected to the brokenness that sin has brought into the world that we are a part of, and who sighs deeply when he encounters it, who isn't far off, absent, and removed from it, but who is the Lord of all of creation, working against the enemy to bring about what he said was very good in the beginning. For God, the fight against the enemy and the brokenness that pervades our world is personal. It is a personal fight. And so for us today, as we find ourselves part of that world that is just not always right, that more times than we could name or number right here today feels hard and painful to be a part of, where sickness is around the corner or where death comes at the most unexpected and unfair times, where we've all felt in small ways and many of us in bigger and like way crazier ways than just small, the brokenness of the creation that we're part of, we can know that God himself is not far off. He is not distant. He is not removed, but he is present. He feels the pain of what we experience. He is broken on our behalf and actively fighting to restore creation to what it was supposed to be. And that's what we see fully in the cross and the resurrection. I cannot even remotely pretend to know the situations that are represented in this room today. I cannot pretend to know the depths of some of the difficulty and pain and struggle that many of us have felt or are feeling here today. And I would never pretend that I could. I can't imagine the emotions that are represented by people here today. But I can know and I do know that the God whose character we meet in this moment by the man at the Sea of Galilee is a character of God who sits in the midst of that, who knows and feels it, who sighs when he experiences and witnesses that pain, but yet actively works to make the promises of Isaiah 35 known and felt in all of creation and one day will make them all felt throughout the entirety of creation. Because the God that we meet in the book of Mark and here in this passage is the one who created it all, the one who sustains it all, and the one who one day is promised to recreate everything. But yet in the midst of that power and that strength is personal, is intimate, and is present to each of us as individuals here today right here, right now. Amen? Amen. What I'd love to do is I'd love to create a little bit of space. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to create some space and we're just going to welcome the Holy Spirit to come. Um, If you do need to slip on and get your kids, we're around about that time. So if you've got kids in the kids' rooms, uh, feel free if you need to slip out now and go get them. But for those of us that are still able to stay, would you stand with me? And we're just going to create some space. Yeah, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are not distant and absent. Lord, we thank you that you 
have stepped into our world and that you know what it feels like to feel pain. And for you, it is a personal, like it is a personal issue that our world feels the way it does sometimes. Come, Holy Spirit. I had this sense whenever I was preparing that um, there were some people in the room that actually recently you felt like almost like God has neglected or abandoned you. And it's down to the situations that you're experiencing in your life. And again, I don't pretend to know what those are, but almost this sense of like, life is so difficult right now, there is no way that God could be in the midst of that. And I just had this sense that if that's you today, you needed to hear this story for what it is, that God is with you in the midst of the pain and the difficulty. Not just with you, but feels it fully and engages with it. And so if that's you and that resonates with you, our prayer ministry team are going to be coming up um, throughout this time as we're just creating some space to the front. And there'll be some people up here afterwards just ready to pray with you and stand with you in that. And then I also had this image of, um, sometimes I get images from movies, and typically it's kids' movies, which I don't know what that says about me, but I had this picture of uh, like this this picture of, you know, the, the movie Up, where the balloons all lift this house, this old man's house, and he wants to travel out to this old destination. And I had this sense that actually, for someone here, you had this, this place in mind. It was like a physical location, and you were headed for that direction. Um, and you felt like God had spoken to you about it, and you didn't know why, but recently, it's almost like the balloons have kind of lost some of their air or their helium and the house that you're traveling along has kind of grounded itself and you're looking around and you feel a little bit like what am I supposed to do now God and it's down and it's happened because you have just felt so like knocked back by the situations that are in your life right now and so if that's you as well like I would love to pray with you and so Holy Spirit we pray you would come we pray you would meet our community Father we thank you for your presence with us today We thank you for your presence with us today. Lord, we thank you that you are present with us. Come and have your way. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.